Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we will have a historical introduction to the Augsburg Confession. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And joining me today is Dr. Jack Kilcrease. He is Associate Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology for the Institute of Lutheran Theology and a member of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Kilcrease, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you for having me on, Sean. Yeah, it's a real honor to have you on today and provide this historical introduction for us of this document that we're going to be starting on the show. We've gone through it before. We often do this where we read through and provide sort of an audio commentary of the documents of the Book of Concord. We also cover confessional topics, but we never like to get too far away from the Book of Concord. And so as we get back into the Augsburg Confession here, and we'll be progressing through the articles in the subsequent weeks, it's really important here, I think, to get a good historical background of what led to the Augsburg Confession, what's going on when the Augsburg Confession is presented. Of course, we talk on the show all the time how this is kind of the main document. We see it referenced a lot throughout the Book of Concord. And so obviously there's a lot of Reformation history, starting with Luther, that precedes the Augsburg Confession here, this chief document of our Lutheran Confessions you know, a little over 12 and a half years or so between Luther posting the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517, and then the presentation of the Augsburg Confession here on June 25th, 1530. But Dr. Kilcrease, go ahead and what are some of the highlights of the things throughout that Reformation history that led to the presentation of the Augsburg Confession here? Okay. So Luther, of course, posted the 95 Theses in 1517. And what has to be really appreciated is that the 95 Theses are actually not reformational theology. Luther is sort of in a transitional phase when he passed the 95 Theses between believing in kind of late medieval theology associated with a theologian called William of Ockham, called nominalism, sometimes called the modern way or the Via Moderna. So he started out with that. And when we hear about him torturing himself in the monastery, essentially he was laboring under that kind of theology because that theology said, do your best and then God will bestow grace on you, which of course is maddening since no one knows what their best is. So he then adopts a transitional theology, which is sometimes by German scholars called humilitas theologie, so humility theology. So Occam's theology said, you've got to be hyperactive to get God's attention. And this theology says, well, no, it's by hating yourself, degrading yourself and being completely passive before God, that you're going to get in good with God because only by loving God for his own sake and hating yourself, uh, odium su is the Latin. 
actually literally hating yourself is the only way that you can be reconciled with God, even being happy if God were to send you to hell, right? So this is the language that Luther uses in the Romans commentary. So Tetzel comes on the scene who's selling indulgences, and this is the theology that Luther's laboring under. So Tetzel's theology in connection with selling of indulgences is essentially that from Luther's perspective, that you could pay a fee and get out of penance, right? Indulgences are technically not selling forgiveness. They're selling abrogation of doing penance, both either in this life or in the next in purgatory. And so Luther thinks that the entire life of the Christian is a kind of form of penance, right? And so you can't pay a fee to forego the Christian. And that's the entire point of the 95 Theses. So that's not really reformational theology. But the conflict that ensues with the Vatican clarifies for Luther is the question of how do we get access to the merits of Christ? And so he ends up gradually abandoning this humility theology through the study of the scriptures, which in part was sort of fueled by his encounter with the young Melanchthon, who we'll see was, is the author of the Augsburg Confession, because he was a great teacher of Greek and Luther then began to study the Greek of the New Testament more clearly. He comes to the realization that righteousness before the eyes of God, the Latin term is coram Deo, before the face of God, and that's what it literally is comes about by God's gift of his own righteousness, which people receive by faith. And as a result of this, it completely shifts his ideas about pretty much everything else in Christian theology, right? And so he produces his great Reformation treatises, Freedom of a Christian, the address to the Christian nobility of the German nation, and then Babylonian captivity of the church. So in one, he reformulates his ideas about the church. That's the, about the address to the Christian uh, nobles of the German nation. Uh, one is about the sacraments. That's the Babylonian captivity church. And then the final one is about justification. And around the theme of justification, he reformulates the idea of what the church is and what the sacraments are and how the church that should then relate to the rest of society and what the church actually is. Now, this puts him as the humanist scholar Erasmus puts it in a position where he's in an absolute and total break with the papacy. And this culminates then in the excommunication of Luther by the Vatican. The Vatican wanted to get Luther back in line, but the Vatican sends out a bull called Insurge Domine, uh, which means rise up, O Lord. It's a quote from, I believe, Psalm 34, rise up, O Lord, and defend your cause, calling Luther a wild boar of the vineyard of the Lord and telling him that he has to retract a certain number of statements or he's going to face excommunication. Luther is completely shocked by this because he had no clue as to how bad things had gotten, really. And then stages a public protest where he burns the bull and then the Code of Canon Law. Uh, the Code of Canon Law is like the kind of almost quasi-governmental law code that governs the Roman Catholic Church. So by doing this effectively, he was rejecting the concept of the church as a kind of government above other governments, which had been present in the Middle Ages, and then effectively argues that the office of the papacy is the Antichrist and that we're living in the last days. And this sort of, this entire condemnation of him in the gospel clarifies people's decision whether or not they want to, you know, be part of the kingdom of the Antichrist or whether or not they want to go with this reform. It also then leads to the Diet of Worms, which was a gathering of what was called the Holy Roman Empire. Um, the Holy Roman Empire was basically Germany and the Low Countries, and then some uh, parts of Eastern European countries and parts of uh, Northern Italy and Austria and places like that. And because of a series of ecclesiastical conflicts and conflicts with local rulers during the Middle Ages, 
it had been radically decentralized. And though there was an emperor, he had relatively little control apart from being able to gather both church leaders and the nobles together to kind of do what he wanted them to do. And he did this essentially through what were called diets. So a diet is almost like a kind of a congressional gathering or something along these lines. And because his own prince and then a number of other German princes were open to Luther's reforms and Luther as a problem wasn't going to go away anytime soon. Basically, the emperor gathered together the imperial authorities and the church authorities to kind of hash this thing out and ask Luther to come. Now, Luther, of course, had a great incentive not to come because in a previous council, the Council of Constance in 1415, the Czech reformer, who was advocating very similar things to Luther, not identical, but some similar things, he was invited, given what was called safe conduct, that's a promise from the emperor, that he would not be arrested. And then he was anyways, and executed. So Luther could very well have been executed on the spot once he got there. But he says that he's going to go anyways. He says if there might be as many devils in Worms as there are tiles on the roof, but he's going to show up. So he shows up and effectively, as we know, tells everyone that his mind is captive to the word of God, unless they can explain to him why his position is actually wrong based on the Bible or sound reason, he's not going to recant, which since everyone expected him to either be executed on the spot or to recant, this sent everybody into a panic and immediately everyone began to talk amongst themselves, often private rooms as to what they were going to do about this. Luther, of course, slipped away only to be housed at Wartburg Castle for the next year and a half or so. Meanwhile, the emperor said, I'm going to deal with this Luther character. Now I'm going to give him a head start. So for 30 days, safe conduct still holds. But after that, he is officially an outlaw. And as an outlaw, anyone can kill him on the spot and not get in trouble for it. But, but so by the way, there's no, um, there's no FBI or anything like this. I mean, uh, you know, maybe you have a town constable or something, but basically it's up to individual citizens. There's no actually even really formal police forces in the middle ages, right? Or early modern period that really simply develops much later. So anybody can take him out essentially. So he's now become an outlaw and Lutheran teaching is officially banned as well. But I think that of course was not the end of it since there were quite a bit of princes who were open to Luther's reform not only because they theologically found it convincing, but because it also gave them control over their local churches, which again, something that they had a lot of political reasons for wanting to do. So the Lutheran Reformation doesn't go away. And as the 1520s roll on and Luther comes out of hiding and starts the hard business of preaching and teaching and trying to get, give some guidance about how the church is going to be reformed. There's a second diet in 1523, called the Diet of Speyer. Now, why does the emperor call this? He calls it because he needs help because his empire is imperiled on several fronts. Charles V, in many ways, I think by the end of his life, almost wished that he had never become Holy Roman Emperor because he had an empire that was way too unwieldy and it meant that it was being attacked on several fronts. So on the one, one end, he was constantly being attacked by the French. He fought several wars with French. And then on the other front, and this is the one that most concerns us, he is being attacked by the Turks. Uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, the great Sultan of Turkey, who had systematically murdered a whole series of his brothers to become the Sultan of Turkey, was eating up 
Southern Europe like crazy and was advancing towards the gates of Vienna in Austria. And from Vienna, he could then invade the heart of the Holy Roman Empire and possibly take it over. Who knows, I mean, what would have really happened. But nevertheless, this is a real threat. And indeed, the Turks got to the gates of Vienna several times during the early modern period until actually the last time that they did was in 1683. And they were finally turned away on September 11th, 1683. So by the way, that's the significance of September 11th, in case your listeners didn't realize it. And then from that point forward, the Turks sort of declined. But they were a real threat. And the emperor needed the help of the German princes to fight the Turks. In fact, it took an enormous coordinated effort to fight them. He fought them in North Africa. His bastard son, Don Juan of Austria, eventually fought them in a gigantic military engagement in the Mediterranean called the Battle of Oponto. And he needed the Lutheran prince's help. Now, he, he was a good Catholic and wanted to remain on good terms with the Pope. So he couldn't very well say, okay, well, go ahead and be Lutherans. But what he said is, you still have to enforce the Edict of Worms, but only insofar as your conscience will allow you. Meaning, if your conscience doesn't allow you to enforce it, then don't force it at all. So this gave a very nice sort of breathing room for the Lutheran Reformation to advance and start actually giving them some safe space to be able to do the hard work of reforming parish life and doing all kinds of other things. Now, the sad thing is, though, by 1529, the situation had cleared up a little bit. The emperor had a temporary respite from some of his enemies, not only the Turks, but also there was a thing called the League of Cognac, where the Pope basically decided with a bunch of the other kings in Europe that Charles had way too much power. Because remember, he ruled Spain, but he also ruled Germany. And then he also ruled, you know, remember with the Inca and the Aztec and all those people, the Spanish, of course, took over that. So he technically controlled that stuff too. So he was, you know, very, very powerful and they were very worried about the imbalance of power in Europe. And so he basically was being ganged up on. And so he was able to successfully fight all these people off. And so by 1529, things were looking a little bit more sunny. And so he had an, then he had a second die to spare where he says, oh, change my mind. Now Lutheranism is still banned and you really have to enforce it now, not just insofar as your conscience goes, but really have to reinforce it. And uh, I'm not going to be loosey-goosey about this uh, anymore. So this immediately leads to what was called a, a kind of protest. That's where the term Protestant comes from because both Lutherans and then also uh, some of these reform people that started in Switzerland and Southern Germany, places like Strasbourg file a protest saying they don't agree with the actual enforcement of the Edict of Worms. And this started making people very nervous and trying to sort of start figuring things out for themselves. So this is in many ways, the beginnings then of the process of now writing an Augsburg confession. So after the second Diet of Speer, it became really clear that the emperor wasn't persuadable and that if he could, he was going to try to get the Lutherans and take them out, essentially. So Philip of Hesse, who was a Southern German prince, had the idea of creating a kind of military alliance amongst the Lutherans, which would eventually come about into something called the Small Cultic League. So the idea was that you'd gather together, you know, like NATO for collective security. And actually it worked exactly like NATO. As we were aware with NATO treaty countries, if one country is invaded, then all the other countries have to come to its aid. So that was the idea of this. If one Lutheran prince is attacked by the emperor, 
all the other Lutheran princes have to spring into action and then defend him. So that's eventually what comes about. But due to the efforts of Philip of Hesse, Melanchthon and some other people were gathered together at what's called Schwabach, at a Schwabach Hall, which is in uh, Brandsburg, Ansburg, uh, in uh, northern Germany, to write up a series of articles, uh, in fact, 17 articles, which they could use as a basis for their kind of like, military alliance. This was a really kind of the result of the fact that when Luther and Melanchthon were presented with the idea of this sort of collectively, one thing that they were quite emphatic about was that they had to have a common confession of faith. There were, by this time, lots of different kinds of Protestants, and they were going to have to kind of have a common confession of faith because they didn't want to enter into a military alliance with people who they theologically disagreed with. What they were thinking of is all those warnings in the Old Testament with about, you know, Israel getting an alliance with Egypt and things like this to, for, against the Assyrians or the Babylonians or something like that. And they felt that would be equivalent to essentially apostatizing if they were a military alliance with people who didn't have a full, the same confession of faith as them. So that became one of the sources of the Augsburg Confession. Now, another source of the Augsburg Confession was the Marburg Articles. And these in part were a result of some of Philip of Hesse's other kind of machinations. He was not so dogmatic as Luther and Melanchthon about having to have theological agreement between the different parties in forming military alliances. He wanted to be as broad as conceivably possible. So he wanted to have a military alliance, what later would be called the Reformed people in Southern Germany. So he made contact with Ulrich Zwingli, who was the reformer of Zurich in Switzerland, people like Echo Lampadius, who was the reformer of Basel, Switzerland, Martin Busser, who was the reformer of Strasbourg. And since Luther and Melanchthon said, we won't engage in any kind of military alliance with people who are not in theological agreement with, he brought them together at what's called the Marburg Castle in Southern Germany to kind of work out their differences. They had a debate and they agreed about often a lot of things, sola scriptura, sola fide, you know, scripture alone, faith alone, all these reformation principles. But the main thing that they didn't agree about were the sacraments. Zwingli and Echo Lampadius advocated the view that the sacraments were symbols. Uh, so it symbolizes Christ's body and blood. It's not the real presence of Christ's body and blood. And that baptism, he was a kind of sign of entering into the Christian community, but nevertheless was not something that was efficacious. And they hashed it out. They had a big debate about it. Actually, we have a number of interesting transcripts of this debate. But in the end, they couldn't actually really agree on anything with that regard. Uh, nevertheless, they did grow up a statement of faith. Uh, the Reformed people kind of fudged things a bit to actually meet the Lutherans' demands quite a bit. I mean, for example, one of the things that the Marburg articles advocate is a belief in confession and absolution. Zwingli didn't believe in confession and absolution. So, so he was willing to fudge that. But the one thing they weren't willing to fudge was the substantial presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. So they end with a 14th article saying, we don't agree about this, but we pray the other side will get it together and believe the right thing about it. Didn't go anywhere. Ultimately, really, this is kind of the point when the Lutheran Reformed traditions end up kind of going their separate ways in some regards. So nevertheless, though, some of the wording and some of the language from that did also make it to the Augsburg Confession. And then finally, you also have something called the Turgau Articles, which were a confession that was supposed to be presented at possibly at Augsburg. So in January 1530, 
Charles realizes that basically he has a, still a very serious problem with the religion issue and the Turk really still are a threat. And so he's going to, he's, he's, we're going to have to have a united front and fix the problems with the religion in the empire. And so we're going to m- meet at Augsburg in spring of 1530. And so he calls this in, in January, 1530. And so on March 14th, then a whole group of sort of early Lutheran theologians, Luther, Melanchthon, Jostas Jonas, Johannes Bugenhagen, all meet together at Turgau Castle and they write up a whole series of articles. And again, a lot of that language from these articles then make its way into the Augsburg Confession as well. So then for spring of 1530, the Diet of Augsburg is set up. Augsburg is a city in southern Germany. And so this is another one of those great kind of imperial gatherings. And so the Augsburg Confession is then written at that time as a way of presenting a confession of faith of the Lutheran churches. Uh, by the way, the other groups within the empire, for example, the Reformed people, uh, had their own confessions of faith. Zwingli wrote up his own confession of faith called uh, De Rational Fide. So there were other confessions presented, but this was really kind of the main one. And uh, it was presented by the Lutherans to show kind of their, their united front in terms of a confession of faith, but also giving a kind of positive kind of articulation to the sorts of reforms that they wanted to see in the church. So that's how we kind of get to Augsburg. That's a good place to go ahead and take a break here. We're hearing from Dr. Jack Kilcrease. He is Associate Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology for the Institute of Lutheran Theology, and he's giving us a historical background and introduction to the Augsburg Confession. On the other side of the break, we'll pick up there and go ahead and get into the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finner of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. We are talking with Dr. Jack Kilcrease. He is an associate professor of historical and systematic theology for the Institute of Lutheran Theology. And Dr. Kilcrease, in the first half of the show, you were giving us kind of the highlights in main Reformation history, taking us from Luther posting the 95 Theses, which, as you stated there, isn't directly Reformation theology there itself. And you've brought us up to all of the things that were leading up to and became influential and that we even see reflected in the Augsburg Confession itself. Go ahead and pick us up here and take us into the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, so the presentation happened on June 25th, 1530. The presenter was Christian Breyer, who read the German copy in front of the emperor. Uh, We're told that the emperor, it was a very hot day, the emperor fell asleep and that he had a very long tongue, like almost like Gene Simmons, like tongue as he, it's his tongue stuck out of his mouth onto his chin as he slept in his chair while everybody else sat and just listened to the confession for two hours or so. 
Um, initially the emperor really didn't want them to publicly present it, but they were able to prevail on him to essentially to do this. Now the text of the Oxford Confession is very, very interesting. And Melanchthon kind of had a few months to sit around in Augsburg and work on it. Now to back up a little bit, uh, some of our listeners probably are wondering, okay, well, wait a second. Luther's sort of the main guy in the reformation. Why isn't he writing them? Why is he not presenting them? Well, if you remember based on the Edict of Worms, Luther is a outlaw in the empire and he would be moving into non-Lutheran territory if he had gone to Augsburg, which is down in Bavaria. It's outside of Saxony. And so he would not have protection from his prince. So he could not go to Augsburg to appear before the emperor and write the articles. So he was confined to being at Coburg Castle on the border and to constantly get letters from Lincoln, which he was really kind of ticked off that the letters didn't come more quickly. Luther was given copies of it and made some comments, but he thoroughly approved of it. He said that he would have done it a different way, but he agreed with the content completely. And eventually, I believe in 1533, the Augsburg Confession became then the standard of teaching at Wittenberg. Uh, so Luther's direct endorsement. But in any case, Melanchthon goes down there to Augsburg and then he has a couple months to kind of compose this thing. He writes it and he rewrites it. He kind of synthesizes the content of the Marburg articles, the Turgau articles, and the Schwabach articles that he kind of had in hand. And what he eventually comes up with is, first of all, 21 articles that give a kind of positive confession of the Lutheran faith. And then he comes up with a whole series of other ones, number 22 through uh, number 28. Okay. So we might say seven articles, uh, which are positive reforms that the Lutherans would like to see in the church. Now, how this is presented has to be understood within the context of both the imperial law and also the ecclesiastical situation in the Holy Roman Empire. Now, as we remember from the first part of this discussion, Luther and the other Lutheran reformers had made repeated attempts to debate with, advocate with what we would call Roman Catholic theologians, a little bit anachronistic at that point, but let's say Roman Catholic theologians, ones that supported the older medieval religion, uh, to reformulate the Christian faith centering around justification, justification through faith. And the papacy essentially said no for a whole variety of reasons, not least because justification by faith largely makes the papacy pointless, right? I mean, because if you have, if you are, are justified by your trust in Christ and the papacy basically functions as a organization that tells you how, what works are justifying essentially, and can turn on and can turn off the spigot of grace through the sacraments of the church and through local bishops and so forth, then you really don't need a papacy any, any longer, right? So you're as Peyton, when he met with Luther, famously wrote the Vatican, he said nothing technically heretical, but if we went with what he says, we'd have a completely different church, right? So a church that's essentially a spigot of grace and a institutional hierarchy, but one that's the wretched little flock gathered around word of sacrament. So more or less the papacy is going to be a no-go. So. If one is going to make any kind of progress in terms of being able to have the necessary breathing room to implement reforms, then one's going to have to go to the emperor. And that means implicitly 
appealing to the laws of the empire as a way of essentially insisting that under imperial law, there's nothing wrong with what the Lutherans are doing. Okay. So the imperial law in the 16th century was based on a Christian reform of the old Roman law that was created by a guy named Justinian. Now Justinian was a Byzantine emperor, the Byzantine empire. That was sort of the remnant of the Christian Roman empire that actually survived into the 15th century. And he, and some of his courtiers went through the old Roman law that had been written by, you know, pagan Romans and had accumulated a lot of kind of laws that weren't always entirely consistent with one another and had come up with something called the Codex of Justinian, which was a kind of just a Christian, we might say, a reformulation of the old Roman law. And one of the things that it contained was the decree of a Christian emperor called Theodosius, who after the second ecumenical council had finally done away with a heresy in the early church called the Arians, had put it as part of imperial law that from now on, the only religion that was going to be legally practiced in the Roman empire from that point forward was stuff that conformed to the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the same faith, he says in it, that Peter first delivered to the Romans. It's the only permissible form of religion in the, in the Roman empire from here on out. Before then there was some religious liberty and toleration, but they had had so many trouble, much, much trouble with pagan emperors and then also heretical emperors that, that basically they decided that was it. From that point forward, the Nicene Creed is the only what's called religio licita, uh, practicable in their own empire. So this then had made it into the version of Roman law that was used in the Holy Roman Empire that the Lutherans labored under in the 16th century. And you can of course see how this was applied in other cases. So people who, for example, in Geneva, where John Calvin, the reformer was a heretical theologian by the name of Servetus shows up trying to probably actually possibly tried to convince Calvin of his rejection of the Trinity. And Calvin says he's not getting out alive. And so he's executed. Why is he executed? Because they're following the old imperial law, right? So other people show up and disagree with Calvin, but they don't end up dead. They end up getting kicked out of like Jerome Balzac, who comes out and doesn't agree with Calvin's views about predestination. Well, they put him in jail and then they realize there's, he's not said anything against the law and then they have to let him go. Right. But people who advocate rejecting the Trinity can be executed. Okay. So what's the very first thing that you get in the Augsburg Confession? In fact, indeed, what's the very first thing you get in the Book of Concord? You get the Nicene Creed, okay? And then, of course, also the other subsidiary creeds, the Apostles and the Athanasian Creed. But the affirmation of the Council of Nicaea is the very, very first thing in the Augsburg Confession. What's the point? The point is, okay, the Pope may not like us, O Emperor, but if you look at what we teach, we are technically within the laws of what constitutes a religio licita, a licit religion within the laws of the empire. Okay. Now you may not like justification by faith or any of the rest of it, but condemnation of that is not on the rule books. We conform to the Nicene Creed. So we are a legal religious tradition within the empire. So that's the first thing that you see. Then as you go down the list of the different articles, you'll see that Melanchthon writes things in such a way that they have a very broad ecumenical appeal and that they are in harmony with the teachings of the early church. So the first article, we have the first and second ecumenical councils affirmed. So the first council of Nicaea, and then the first council of Constantinople, 
what is oftentimes colloquially known as the Nicene Creed. Then we have a second article on the doctrine of original sin. Again, a belief that was shared by Christians in the Middle Ages since St. Augustine, that there is such a thing as original sin. And that had been affirmed in an ancient council of the church, albeit a local one, the second council of Orange. Okay. So first two articles are ecumenical teaching that have a council behind them. Third article is again, something that has the ecumenical consensus of the early church behind it and a count and actually a couple of councils. So we have the third ecumenical council at Ephesus, which affirms that Mary is the mother of God. Then we have the fourth, which affirms that Jesus Christ is true God and true man in this one person. So we have on the son of God that Christ is two natures, one person. So an affirmation of the council of Chalcedon. And then only on the fourth article, then we get to justification by faith. Now, granted, there's no ecumenical council with justification by faith in it. The way that the Lutherans formulated this, though, again, there was some precedent in the early church. Some people in the early church definitely use that language. Okay. They don't really systematically apply it the way the Lutherans do, but they use that language. John Christostom would be one example of this. It's not condemned at all by the imperial law, for one thing. And for another thing, it becomes the logical corollary of the first three articles. If, as Athanasius taught, it seems to me that Lycan is implying, of only a God saves, and if, as Gregory of Nazianzus also says, that which is assumed is not redeemed, so that principle which is worked out in the councils of Ephesus and then the council of Chalcedon, where it affirms that Jesus is fully human, then justification by faith is the logical corollary. Because if Christ is God, it means that we can't save ourselves. God has to come into creation to actually do it for us. And if he assumed a full humanity and that which is assumed is not redeemed, it means that our whole humanity is completely corrupted as of course the second article affirms. And so we can't rely on anything inside of ourselves at all. The only thing that we can rely on is something external to us and that's the son of God, right? So those great ecumenical councils, the logical implication of them, though they never spell it out, the logical implication of them is then the fourth article, justification by faith. So in this way, Melanchthon doesn't major in minors. He talks in very broad ecumenical language and he shows how the Lutheran distinctive of justification by faith is the logical implication of that teaching of the early church. And then throughout the rest of the articles, basically you have the implications of justification drawn out in teachings about the church and the sacraments and then the civil magistracy and other issues as well. So again, relying typically on, again, the councils of the ancient church or just sort of general themes that people who were familiar with a lot of the theology of the early church theologian, St. Augustine would have been in agreement with. And indeed, by the way, when the papal and then the imperial theologians got their hands on these, I mean, a great many of them were accepted and blessed in spite of the fact that they disagreed with a lot of the um, teachings of the Lutherans on a whole bunch of other issues. Now, once you get to article 22, it gets kind of interesting, but these are the positive reforms. So as I mentioned in the first 21 articles, you have a kind of like a kind of reliance on the councils or the implications of what the councils of the early church teach. So a kind of the great, we might say small C Catholic teaching of the old church, the great tradition. What is the consensus of the great tradition of the early church? And 
Langton, I think, does a really bang up job of, of sort of summarizing that. And then also then saying, well, look, Lutherans, in a sense, are adding something to this body of ecumenical teaching. But look, our teaching of justification by faith is the complete logical fulfillment of those principles that we find in the early church. Now, when we turn to abuses corrected, the interesting subtext here is to say, yeah, the ancient church got things basically right. Okay. The church of the, let's say about the first thousand years, but things in the, in the medieval Latin church have gone off the rails and they've gone off the rails for a very particular reason. Most of the things that are mentioned as abuses to be corrected were innovations in the medieval church that come about as something sometimes referred to called the Cluniac reforms and the Gregorian revolution. And these were attempts in the 11th century of introducing new practices that would, well, for a variety of reasons. I mean, again, they thought that these things as reforms at the time. The goal was to put some distance between the clergy and the laity, because in many countries, the civil authority had kind of taken over the church and was using the church for its own purposes. And the thinking on this was the way to counteract this was a, to start really concentrating power in the papacy as a way of pushing back against the manipulation of local churches by local rulers. And secondly, creating a really sharp distinction between the clergy and the laity. So for example, practice number one, communion in both kinds. This was the teaching of the Roman Catholic church prior to the second Vatican council in the 1960s that the laity could only receive the host. They could not receive the wine. Why was this promulgated as part of the Cluniac reforms? Well, again, if you talk to Roman Catholics, they'll try to argue it's because it had to do with the laity being scared that they'd spill the blood of Christ. In reality, the subtext was if the clergy can receive communion of both kinds, but the laity can't, it means they're superior to them and they're more untouchable. Lutherans say, look, Jesus instituted it in both kinds. We better celebrate it in both kinds. Uh, marriage of priests, Gregorian revolution, the end of priestly marriage. Again, the idea was, I think that one issue was that a lot of local bishops got married, they had children, and then they passed their bishopric onto the children. And this, that was maybe a bit of a corrupt practice. Also, the feeling was that in the early church, people who were monks, people who were voluntarily celibate were, had been kind of the great moral heroes. And so if you made all priests celibate, they could be kind of moral heroes in the same way too. Lutherans say, this has been a complete disaster. Uh, we can of course see that this is even more of a disaster, um, continues to be a total disaster in the Roman Catholic church, even to this day. And so we need the marriage priests and we could go on through these. I mean, a number of things, for example, monasticism and some other things as well. I mean, those certainly did the venerations of the saints. We could mention that as well. That's actually article 21. Those things were things that did actually exist prior to the Gregorian revolution. But most of these are things that are part of the, the Gregorian revolution. I would also mention ecclesiastical power. So at this point, the church starts taking on more political power, essentially, you know, certainly, I mean, some areas of Europe, the church had exercised political power before, but it becomes more of a political organization and the Lutherans are dead set against the idea that the church has any kind of governing authority. The church does have authority. That's certainly the case, but it's authority to teach the gospel. It's not authority to rule principalities or exercise, engage in military exercises or things of, of this nature. And so 
when you read the Augsburg Confession as a document as a whole, it's a advocacy for returning to the church of the first thousand years, the great ecumenical consensus, okay, and seeing how that ecumenical consensus feeds into Luther's teaching of justification by faith, and then wanting to push back against innovations that had happened in the previous 500 years. And interestingly enough, ones that had been very sectarian, because how these practices get introduced into the Western church are by the Pope breaking with the Eastern church, telling them that they're not really part of the church anymore, and then going off and holding a whole series of councils, what were called the Lateran councils, and just deciding things on his own. So it was actually in many ways, and I think that Melanchthon would agree with this judgment, a lot of these were very sectarian practices, right? The Catholic church likes to paint itself as universal. And these are the practices of the consensus of the church, but really they were just one section of the church. The Eastern church never agreed to, to any of these. In fact, they found many of them very repugnant. The rejection of the marriage of priests, the idea that the church should not have communion of both kinds and things of this nature. If you talk to people in the Eastern church, they were very much against this. And indeed the Lutherans attempted to make contacts with the Eastern church. Melanchthon eventually translated the Augsburg confession into Greek and sent it to the Greek church and said, look, we want to talk with you. We think we can have a consensus with you and enter into fellowship with you. And <laughs> sadly they ended up being as, as sectarian as Rome did. But the point is, is that these are actually sectarian practices. These are not universal Christian practices. These are not things that have consent of the whole church. But of course, most importantly, of course, they're not things grounded in scripture, but they're actually, again, very kind of sectarian practices in their own way and really harm the life of the church. And indeed, modern Roman Catholics in many respects have kind of removed a lot of these activities. They, so now they have communion of both kinds, uh, other ones they haven't. Uh, but I think that Lutherans have been in large measure proven correctly and that the Catholic church has not only budged on some of these, but the life of their church has suffered in many regards because of their unwillingness to implement some of these reforms. And I think the proof is really in the pudding on these. We've proven to be more right than we even knew that we were back in the 16th century. So as you've excellently laid out what was presented there at Augsburg for us, one of the things that we're going to do as we go through the Augsburg Confession this time, we're going to be making references to the apology of the Augsburg Confession. Previously on the show, we've just read through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and that took like four years because it's just so long and doing it an hour at a time. Mm -hmm. But as we see the connection then to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, how do we get there from what happens at Augsburg? Right. Okay. So it's read to the emperor and then the imperial and then the papal theologians get their hands on it. And so what... The emperor asks them to do basically is, is to repudiate this thing. So they sit down and then they write something called the papal computation. And you could read this in a an interesting volume called sources of context of the book of Concord. It's just recently been translated. And it, I mean, it's, it's really quite awful not to, I mean, of course I'm as a Lutheran, I'm of course biased in favor of this, but, uh, I mean, some of the people in the audience were not very, when it was read out, some people were in the audience were not very nice. They actually snickered a bit at it, but it had really bizarre lines of reasoning in some cases that I think within the context of late medieval theology might make sense, but were not very convincing to the uh, Lutherans. I'll give you an example. They are trying to defend, remember the Lutherans are in favor of this idea 
that you should have communion in both kinds because Jesus says, you know, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. Right. And they're trying to defend communion in one kind for the laity. So one of their arguments is, well, but David, when he was trying to escape Saul, ate just the showbread put out for the priests in the, um, you know, in the tabernacle. So see, we should have communion in one. <laughs> what does that have to do, anything to do with anything? Right. I mean, it's just like these very weird lines of reasoning. Uh, but the emperor didn't really much care about this and he wasn't a professional theologian. So it, this was thing was read out and he basically turns to the Lutherans and says, see, they refuted you game over. Okay. Submit to the old church and we can get on with, you know, governing the empire and fighting the Turk. And if you don't, there's going to be some serious consequences. And the Lutherans said, okay, whoa, okay, slow down. We didn't think that was a terribly impressive response to the Oxford confession. Could we be given an opportunity to respond? And the emperor said, uh, well, I mean, he, there's some hemming and hawing, but eventually he said, okay, sure. And they said, well, can we have a copy of it? No, you can't have a copy of it. But enough of the people had, of course, written it down, essentially, that they could recall it from memory, that they could respond to it a little bit. And so Melanchthon then goes about writing in 1531, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, taking on their criticisms of Lutheran teaching in the Augsburg Confession. Now, he did, by the way, he didn't have to respond to articles on everything because interestingly enough, quite a few of the articles they had no problem with. They had no problem with the one about the Trinity. They didn't have any problem with the one about original sin. Interestingly enough, they didn't really have too much trouble on the ones about ecclesiastical ministry. Uh, I'm not really sure how that one works out, but nevertheless, they didn't say anything about it. So Langton writes this treatise, uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. He gets contributions from other people. Luther contributed, he read over it and contributed things as well. So there's a little bit of Luther in there too. Probably the main sections in that one are his kind of sustained argument for the doctrine of justification, which is really quite breathtaking. It's a very wonderful summary of the Lutheran position and a very good defense of it as well. It goes on for about 200 pages or so. Luther himself kind of responded to the papal confutation as well in the form of a series of lectures that he gave on the epistle to the Galatians in 1531 also. And so a lot of that commentary on Galatians, is, it's sometimes called the Great Galatians Commentary, is a sort of uh, response to the uh, papal confutation. All right, that is where we are going to wrap up the episode for today with our historical introduction for the Augsburg Confession. But before we do, just one note that I would like to make for our listeners. One of the things that we often talk about, especially within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is the unaltered Augsburg Confession. Many of our congregations, including the two I serve, even have that in their official name as a congregation. So, for instance, I serve Emanuel Evangelical Lutheran Congregation of the Unaltered Augsburg Confession at West Point, and also St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Congregation of the Unaltered Augsburg Confession at Wine Hill, Illinois. So the Unaltered Augsburg Confession, or simply abbreviated UAC, you will often see it in a congregation's official name in the Constitution and so forth as a part of their official title as a congregation as they were set up in the late 1800s by German immigrants here in Southern Illinois. Uh, of course, those names would have been in the German initially and until about the 1940s or so when they stopped using German in these congregations. 
But this was something that was very significant for the Lutherans in Germany and still for our ancestors that came over to the United States in the 1800s and founded the congregations that eventually made up the Missouri Synod. And to many, myself included, is something that is still important today. And so that's definitely something we want to talk about and cover here. However, we are actually going to take up that topic briefly in Article 10, but then more extensively in the conclusion section after we get through all the articles of the Augsburg Confession, as where that comes from comes on the other side, if you will, historically, in terms of the timeline of the Augsburg Confession, which, of course, so does the apology of the Augsburg Confession, which I just had you, Dr. Kilcrease, briefly cover there for us. But as I said before, I wanted to get at least that little brief connection in there now in our introduction, just because as we go through the articles of the confession in subsequent weeks, my guests will be making connections to the apology or defense of the Augsburg Confession as we teach the theology that is presented by each article and how that doctrine was then defended and further explained in the apology. So I wanted our listeners to at least have a little bit of history and background of that before we start making references to it and reading some sections from there as well. But when we get to the conclusion of the Augsburg Confession, we will also be taking up a little more of that history of the Apology there, as well as talking about why we reference the unaltered Augsburg Confession and what that is all about then. So that is all we have today on the historical introduction of the Augsburg Confession and a brief connection to the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Next week, we will take up Article 1 on God and looking at the doctrine of the Trinity as confessed at Nicaea, as Dr. Kilcrease referenced here today. And then we'll continue to go week by week through each article of the Augsburg Confession. So please join us as we make our walk here through the theology of what we Lutherans confess in the Augsburg Confession. Thank you very much to our guest today, Dr. Jack Kilcrease. He is Associate Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology for the Institute of Lutheran Theology. It's been an honor to have you join us today and provide this historical introduction to the Augsburg Confession. Thank you, Dr. Kilcrease. It's been my pleasure. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.